Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, my special guest is Jessica Julmi, Managing Director of Chateau Galupe, part of the mighty LVMH. Uh, she cut her teeth at Krug, the exclusive champagne house, but Provence Rosé came calling and now she's at the helm of a pioneering project to put sustainability front and centre from birds to bees, biodiversity to bottles. Uh, we'll find out more. Plus, later, as always, your recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Jessica Julney had the dream job, commercial director of Krug, the exclusive champagne house that dares to be different. Uh, but then along came a project that was in itself too good to turn down. Parent company LVMH had bought a rather run-down Grand Cru Classe estate in the heart of the Côte de Provence, overlooking the Mediterranean. And the bosses wanted her to take it on, and more importantly, to dare to be different herself in the way that it was run. Uh, the job meant starting from scratch to a great extent, from the bottom up, assessing everything from the 70-odd hectares of vines uh, to the 100-odd hectares of wild woodland that surrounds uh, the estate, developing a plan to put sustainability at its very heart. Uh, that was 2019. This year, we have the first new wines from the estate, a Grand Cru Classe estate wine in a bold, lightweight brown bottle. Um, clear glass, by the way, is the usual Provence style, but uh, it has to be made from virgin glass, whereas brown glass does not. And uh, even more daring than that, an ocean-recovered plastic container that is actually sort of letterbox-sized, it's flat, uh, for its second wine uh, called Nomad. Uh, more on that uh, a little later. Jessica is uh, the managing director of Rosé de Provence uh, for LVMH, and I'm delighted to say she joins me now. Uh, Jessica, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you so much. Before we talk about Chateau Galupe then, uh, let's learn a little bit more about you as a person. You grew up in the USA, uh, I think to Swiss parents. How did you end up in the wine world? I, I fell into the wine world really by chance. It was when I was doing my MBA at uh, London Business School that uh, I was thinking of the next steps career-wise. And one of my classmates, her husband, was working for a small fine wine merchant. And they knew I spoke uh, Mandarin, Mandarin Chinese. And this small fine wine merchant was looking to open offices in Hong Kong. I didn't have much experience at all, actually, in wine. Um, but they liked my Mandarin, so I set off to, to Hong Kong and, and kind of fell in, fell in love with this industry, this industry of passion, humility, sharing. Um, and that's how it, it all started, so about uh, 10 years ago now. And how did you come to speak Mandarin, by the way? Oh, <laughs> this was just a choice. Uh, having grown up with French and English at home, having studied Spanish when I was quite young, when I started my undergraduate studies at uh, Georgetown University in the in the U.S., I wanted a bit of challenge, and Mandarin seemed like the good one, and it, a challenge it was. I bet it was. I mean, you're talking here to someone who can scarcely uh, sort of navigate himself out of a railway station in French. So I think um, it's pretty impressive uh, the number of, of languages uh, in which you are um, fluent. Um, how then did you end up at a really high end brand like Krug? In all honesty, I have to thank my, my uh, there's a lucky angel, um, and I think it's thanks to, to begin with, with the London Business School uh, Network uh, that introduced me and, and sent my CV at some point, very honestly, because I, uh, it's not a, the sexiest story, but I never actually applied. Um, and then I'll never forget, it was at Brown's Hotel that I met uh, Maggie Enriquez, 
longtime uh, president and CEO of, of Krug Champagnes uh, in March of 2013. And, you know, this is a lady you don't say no to. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, um, I won't dwell on Krug because we've got so many other things to talk about, but it's kind of, uh, to anyone in wine, it's it's kind of irresistible to, to not talk about Krug a little bit. Um, Krug likes to be different, as I said in the introduction. Uh, they'll like me saying that, I think. Um, and it sits in the Moet Hennessy portfolio, but it also kind of weirdly sort of seems to sit outside it as well at the same time, if, if that makes sense. What did being there kind of instill in you? Oh, so much. I have uh, so much to be thankful for, starting with, with Maggie and an, an, an unbelievable leader, uh, as, as, as brilliant intellectually and emotionally, um, and who had the vision. Um, and, and one of the main things uh, I learned under, under her realm and, and, and by her side was uh, the, the, the necessity for, for vision. And all the more in this industry, all the more when we are a house of LVMH, we are not responsible. We are nothing. We are just responsible for the, for the generations to come. So partly from her leadership and uh, the, the long-term vision, uh, but also uh, the likes of Eric Lebel, who was longtime seller master, and also Julie Caville, who's taken his place today, of quality, 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 quality. And that goes hand in hand with time. Um, and, and the lessons have been countless. I, I will be eternally grateful to, 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 to the team there and my time there, um, which have been, you know, priceless in giving me the direction uh, and the vision and an idea of what to do with uh, with a sleeping beauty. Um, but mostly, perhaps it's it's always it comes back to this notion of of time, which is something that is r the real luxury of today. So let's talk about Sleeping Beauty then. How did the move to Chateau Galoupe come about? As you say, Krug is what a beauty, and and I could have I could have retired at Krug. I could have spent decades there and retired happily. Um, I love the story. I love the quality. I love the champagnes, of course. Um, I knew it was a time for to change, um, and 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 this this opportunity was a bit of a curveball. I was looking at other opportunities within the group and when they presented me with this one um, I didn't do any due diligence but I knew um, that this was a once in a lifetime when do you ever get the chance to 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 to, to take over uh, a, a new brand uh, in the LVMH uh, portfolio uh, when I say I don't didn't do my due diligence I, I guess I hadn't measured the extent to which as you mentioned at the beginning the extent to which we'd be starting from scratch um, but if I if I even if I had known that I, I could have never said uh, said no even even if knowing the paramount nature of this exercise. So paint us a bit of a picture of um, what you started with at Chateau Galoupe. Um, I rather cruelly described it as um, uh, sort of rather run down um, in the introduction, but um, it is, you know, uh, when I went there back at the end of March, um, if you've been anywhere that's sort of owned by LVMH, you, you expect a certain level of kind of pristine kind of poshness, I suppose. And um, it is not um, yet uh, that, is it? No, 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 not at all. Um, I prefer to say it, 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 it is a sleeping beauty that was, was lacking uh, a bit of love. Um, and when I say lacking a bit of love, what, what we have here is really a unique ecosystem, which it which took me a few weeks, a few months to really discover the extent to which it was quite a unique ecosystem. But when I say lacking in love is that with previous owners having felt there was more to gain out of this place with 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 events and, and large scale weddings, the 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 70 the, the 70 or so hectares of vineyard, which you mentioned at the beginning, had been really deprioritized um, besides in conventional agriculture and the 77 hectares of protected woodland uh, were not prioritized at all and, and had been recently impacted yet again by forest fires. So it was a bit, uh, let's say, tired. Um, and that's what we discovered and in a situation where the, the place, the location had been invested from a event perspective, but not a winery or a vineyard or a, a forest perspective. Mm. And it does have this proud history because it's a, a grand cru class A uh, property. There are always arguments in Provence about how much that means. And we won't we won't dwell on those because, frankly, it's not very interesting, really. But but it's um, but it but it is a, a, a property with a, a, a long and at one stage quite proud history, isn't it? Indeed. And, and you know, uh... 
I have to, you, you mentioned my, my past at, at Krug and for me that was an interesting starting point because I, I was able to live at Krug the extent to which rediscovering your roots and the importance of fully understanding your founder, your founder's vision allows you to just be a mere executor, if you will. You just have to follow your founder's vision. And here I thought, okay, maybe I'll find inspiration for that. Maybe we have a founding moment, a, a sort of a family history or, or whatever the case may be. So again, started looking in, in the archives and it was a bit of a bumpy ride because um, we have quite a bit of history, but we had to go beyond the the French Revolution, there have been unfortunately countless forest fires, so there are a lot of missing uh, moments in, in, in the winery's history. Um, but we were indeed able to go as far back as uh, the first map of France, so the 18th century in the mid 1700s, you find Galopé, uh, so a derivative, but G-A-L-O-P-E, appearing on that very first map of France. So you, and that for me was that first tipping point when I realized okay, we, we, we might not be the sexiest and, and most pristine place today. We may have changed hands 15 times. I might not actually know the foundation date, which for, for, for many a months for me, it was a grand uh, disappointment uh, to be part of LVMH when I didn't even know my foundation date. But I knew that as far back as the mid 1700s, this place, that this land beneath my feet existed. And that allowed me to take a step back and think, okay, what is this place? And that's when I realized, hold on, I've been looking at this purely as a winery exercise when here you have, yes, these 69 hectares of vineyard of Cru Classé de Provence, but also these 77 hectares of protected woodland. So indeed, this, this history rich, uh, challenged, many ups and downs. Um, so not this pristine uh, history uh, uh, story to share, um, but it has been uh, existing for quite a while. Mm, and it's in a very beautiful place with the views of uh, the island of Porquerolles in the distance and the Med, and it's it's, it's very, very um, lovely. So it's going to be wonderful, I think. Of course, in the meantime, I think it was in the meantime anyway, um, so LVMH uh, bought this property, off you went, um, and then uh, sort of separately, I think, um, LVMH uh, became the majority shareholder in the mighty Chateau d'Esclin. Um, Sasha Lachine was a, a previous guest on The Drinking Hour. Absolutely fascinating chat. I loved that edition. A real pioneer and that kind of happened sort of as well didn't it exactly so that so uh chateau galoupet was acquired in the summer so uh, between may and july and then uh chateau desclon came a few months later in the fall of the same year and um, you're not part of that then? That's a sort of separate thing. No, we were part of the discussions at the, I was part of the discussions at the beginning. And, and when you have the, 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 the chance of integrating uh, an establishment like Chateau d'Esclon and, and the, the experience, the knowledge, the foresight of, of a gentleman like Sacha Lichin, you, 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 you manage that differently. And so that has indeed been managed, been differently integrated within the Moat Hennessy LVMH network uh, separately as it deserves given the size and, and the success over the last decade. Have you always been a fan of Provence Rosé? <laughs> can I be Swiss and very neutral in answering that yeah, question? Of course you can, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was never my, 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 my tipple of choice, let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, okay, but you're a convert now. And, exactly. Uh, and I, I've, I've actually always been a, an enormous fan. I, they're wonderful wines. And of course, there's been this quality revolution as well, um, which uh, in large part, I mean, led by many people, but uh, Sasha Lachine is absolutely mm -hmm. certainly one of them. So tell us a bit more about the estate. We've talked about the hectareage, uh, 70, and then that uh, that woodland, which um, is, is very much part of your thinking. Um, where do you start with something like this? A few months of loneliness. Uh, and thinking that exact question, where do I start? Um, and then really, um, without exaggeration, that, that, that tipping point of realizing, okay, we have this land beneath our feet. Let's take a look at that. Maybe that is our, 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 the, the, the uniqueness of our foundation. It's the land, it's the earth. And, and at the risk of, of sounding a bit corny, that soon became the inspiration, hand in hand with, with a report I was reading uh, from the biodiversity that did exist at the time within the forest and, 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 and realizing that we had potentially a rather rare species of tortoise. And I thought, 
oh my gosh, we have this opportunity. And, and for me, this kind of clicked in this, 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 this conviction that I have that when you are part of LVMH, it's a responsibility, a, a twofold responsibility, if you will, investing in the savoir-faire, not coming in as, 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 as knights on, on our white horse um, to save the region, because as you mentioned, the region has done so much in, in the last years, in the last decade to improve the quality, improve the savoir-faire and so on. But it is a responsibility of a group like LVMH to continue investing in the savoir-faire. And today, more than ever, more than ever, Moet Hennessy is as, as part of kind of the, the wines and spirits arm, the responsibility to invest in this sustainable viticulture, the sustainable vitification practices. So you combine that responsibility that I, I hold very, very dear to what I considered an opportunity in the sense that we were ultimately starting from scratch. I admire so greatly the likes of Huina, who have done so much in terms of questioning the status quo where they can. At the same time, when you are the most, uh, the, the oldest champagne house that exists, you have a, a, a responsibility and a, and a commitment to your tradition, to your history. We don't have at Chateau Galoupet that, that, same, that, that same history, that same tradition, these long established brand codes. And so I felt that we had this opportunity to really start things from scratch besides the obligation. We talked about a, a slightly tired vineyard, if you will. One of the discoveries I had was that from the vineyard as it stood, we would have to uproot and replant 60% of the vineyard over the de next decade. And so again, this, this opportunity, finding the silver lining of, of what is unfortunate in terms of having to uproot and replant, but thinking, okay, what opportunity does that give us? And, and when you combine that responsibility, the opportunity, the fact you are a Cru Glacé de Provence, the beauty of being a Cru Glacé de Provence, small parentheses here, is that your wine, when you, when you create a Cru Glacé Rosé, your wine is only from the grapes of your own vineyard. So all of a sudden you're looking at your wine differently. You're looking at the terroir. And you combine that terroir, that cru classé terroir, with your 77 plus hectares of protected woodland. And you have really a, a beautiful uh, and, and unique opportunity to, to really uh, transcend Provence via its terroir and its biodiversity. And from that point on, it was clear for me that that was what we could contribute for the region, um, but for the group as well. Why do you have to uproot all those vines, by the way? Um, because a significant portion of the, the plots, uh, the, the, the parcelles, were, were, were missing a uh, proportion uh, over 20% of the vine stocks. And in order to meet the Aosecote de Provence, uh, we have to, we could look at co-plantation, um, but given the state of the vineyard, it was best to uproot and replant. So that's what we're looking at over the next decade. So it's ultimately to meet the AOC Côte de Provence um, um, requirements. And you have something rather special there, which is also uh, a bit of a bugger as well, a grape variety called Tiburin, um, which um, is um, indigenous to Provence, um, but um, still relatively unusual, partly because it is a bit of a bugger, I think. Tell us a bit about that and, and why uh, you think it's special. I absolutely love Tiburin. For me, it was a discovery when I arrived there. I had never heard about this grape variety before. Unique in the sense that Chateau Galoupet had actually been crafting a rosé called Tibur uh, that was nearly 100% crafted out of Tiburin. Um, so there was already this existing savoir-faire. And, 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 and for me, it was critical. The, the, the Chateau Galoupet team today is essentially the same as it was when we came in. So the, the, it was important to, 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 to benefit from, from the existing savoir-faire of, of the technical team and, and the remainder of the team. So the Tipourin is a grape, grape variety, as you mentioned, intrinsic to Provence, um, but even then it only represents about 2% of what is planted in Côte de Provence. It's, it's finicky, if you will, uh, both in terms of its viticulture, but also from a vinification perspective. Within the vineyard, it's, it's, it's more prone to disease, um, so it's, 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 it's more delicate. It is more prone to millerandage, so when there's kind of this heterogeneous um, ripening of, of the vine. And it ripens earlier. Uh, so in recent years, when we have more and more frost, actually, surprisingly, this is the first one to kind of get hit because it's already had bud break, potentially. And then the optimal harvest date is an absolute nightmare. Um, and oftentimes it seems like it's over 
overripe to get the full uh, varietal expression you would imagine it to be overripe and then in the blend it's 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 a nickname that we have for it is kind of the, the the teenage grape in that one day it's fine one day it's not fine one day it's fine one day it's not fine so it really takes its time before settling and providing its best expression and kind of tempered expression that will uh, not uh, hugely uh, impact the blend. So this is definitely a great idea that's interesting in a blend when you want its characteristics, which is more like the black pepper notes, the, 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 the kind of more ripe apricot notes. And also when you have the time, when you're not looking to, to, to press blend and start selling within uh, a few months. Your estate director, Mathieu Mayer, um, who calls Tiburan, as you say, a, a teenager wine, um, or a, a teenager grape, I should say, um, he, he went through the list of all the things that made it um, uh, difficult. And uh, at the end of it, I remember saying to him, why on earth do you bother? Uh, why do you bother with it? We often say that we this it was a winery that was lacking a bit of love and that we've had to start from scratch. At the same time, we, we should never forget, as I mentioned, an attachment to the historical team and for what they do know and for what existed before. And one of the things that I think was important from the past was the fact that it, it, it kept, this was a place that kept working Tibouhan. A little while ago, I mentioned that it became evident that the reason for being at Chateau Galoupé was really to, to, to transcend, to elevate Provence via its terroir and its biodiversity. And so when you have a grape variety that is intrinsic to that place, to Provence, and when it represents just under 2% of what's actually pr uh, planted, it's also a, a, an ob a responsibility, uh, again. Uh, uh, of course, it's, a, it's an opportunity as well, as in the sense that it will provide uh, unique characteristics to our blend, um, but it's, it's worth, uh, worth the effort when it's part of, part of Provence. Mm. And I would agree, it, it, it really is, and it does um, uh, reveal itself uh, in that uh, uh, Grand Cru Classe uh, wine. Um, Provence Rosé is always a blend, always a minimum of at least two grape varieties, normally more. What else are you dealing with there in terms of grape varieties? Today, the soils that we have, so we have to imagine that, as we mentioned, we will be uprooting and replanting 60%. So it's it's really a long, long haul project at Chateau Galoupé. The plan in general is 20 years, but we won't be at full capacity uh, for another decade or so, uh, just over a decade, really taking our time to uproot and replant. I tell you this now because that is also kind of impacting what we're willing to release um, because we, we, over the last few years, we've tried different blends and uh, to determine the kind of the organoleptic profile that we wanted our Cru Classé to be in, what we felt was the best expression of our terroirs. So after studying um, and doing terroir analysis, um, we realized that with our three different micro terroirs, we felt that Grenache was nicely expressive, um, in addition to the Tibourin, but also Syrah, where a lot of wineries in Provence have turned away from Syrah because, it, because it's potentially, uh, how to say, too muscular, too, mm, too, too assertive. bold. Assertive. Yeah, mm, mm. we felt that our soils work well with the Sierra, um, whether it be on its own. So, for example, in the 2020, 2021, excuse me, vintage, you have 2% of pure Sierra, but also as a nice uh, counterpart to our white grape. Um, so as many rosés uh, in Provence, we have uh, Rol, uh, or as uh, Italians call Vermentino, as our white grape. Um, but to the contrary of many uh, rosés in Provence who will uh, press that and blend that with Grenache or Mourvedre or even Sanso, uh, we have pressed it with uh, Syrah because again, we feel that it gives the right structure to the, to the, to the wine as, as we want it. So a nice use of Syrah. Um, and then we will see over time this year, we thought we could use Sanso, but we felt that it fundamentally changed the blend. So those are the main grape varieties. So you've got the Grenache, the Tibouran, Syrah and Roll. And a bit of Sanso as well, if you yeah. decide to use it, basically. It, yeah, and, and where you've got smaller proportions of Sanso or Mourved, where we will work as the filtrates um, without getting too technical, but it's a, the best, easiest comparison is really to the to, to the lease in, in Champagne. So these filtrates will extract them, filter them cold, and put them in these uh, demi-mui, so the 500 liter uh, oak barrels uh, that are either one years old or new. Um, and these filtrates give that, that, that mouthfeel, that structure, that potential creaminess um, that we felt that uh, brought quite a bit uh, to the blend. Mm, and it is uh, 
a delicious wine. Uh, I've tasted it both on the um, estate um, and uh, also subsequently on its uh, release. And that um, uh, Grand Cru Classe Chateau Galoupe 2021, it's a superb wine. It really does, um, you know, ooze kind of premium Provence Rosé. It's absolutely delicious. And it wasn't just me that was impressed. It was you know, people like Anne Crebiel, who was there with us on the visit, a master of wine, also sort of super impressed by the, the wine. So congratulations on, on that. Um, let, let's talk about a bit more about what you're doing with... Um, uh, that uh, land around the vines. Uh, the upper reaches of the estate are dotted with all of these beehives, um, searching uh, for um, sort of the future for, for for bees, because as we know, bees are fundamental to our survival and also very much in danger. And you've teamed up with uh, the research centre, the French Observatory of Apidology, haven't you? Exactly, exactly. So there are, there are neighbors, so epidology or beekeeping, it's, it's sometimes hard to translate these terminologies. Um, but there are neighbors, if you will, they're a mere 45 minute drive for us. So it was a stone throw away. And, and again, in, in all of this, I, I think it's important for me to say, you know, at the beginning, there was a, this moment of lo these, these months of loneliness. Um, and, and at first I thought, ah, oh, we don't have this founding date. We don't have a founding founder, you know. And then when I realized that it was off from the land, I, I felt that it per worked out perfectly. And I loved it because it's not my story. It's not Mathieu's story. It's not our technical director's story. This one, with the ambition that we have, it must be one of co-construction. It really does. And, and you had the chance when you were there to meet some of the different experts who have accompanied us from day one and really leveraging the expertise and the knowledge of, of, of different groups of people to really push certain things forward as much from a, a biodiversity perspective, from a terroir perspective, from a building perspective, all in this uh, uh, ambition to create a, a fine terroir rosé while at the same time being as respectful to the environment as possible. So I, I, I divert uh, slightly here, but to talk about the, the OFA, so the, the Observatoire Français d'Apidologie that you were mentioning, our partner with the, the, the bees. Um, and the first test was really saying, okay, we understand that bees are important for biodiversity. Will they have enough to eat? Is there enough uh, flora here um, for them to, for the bees to be happy? That was the first step when that went well. And, and when our bee partner understood what we were doing with the wine of crafting this terroir wine, they thought, why don't we also take it a step further and put even more beehives in the protected woodland and see, can we create a fertilization station here, which is basically, can we basically grow uh, intrinsic queen bees um, as, as one of the issues in declining bee populations is just uh, the cross fertilization. So sorry, I get carried away, but this partnership with the bees has been absolutely phenomenal because as you mentioned, they are the cornerstone of biodiversity. So having these 200 beehives allows us to really boost the, 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 the flora and the fauna in the protected woodland. Seeing is there, an interaction between these bees and the vineyard, even though we know that, that vines are self-pollinating, so technically don't need it. And then this aspect of having this fertilization station for queen bees to show once you have a healthy queen bee, the domino effect on a healthier beehive and thus on the surrounding biodiversity and potentially the soils and then hopefully the vine and then ideally on the quality and generosity of the wine. And then ultimately, and this one will take many, many years, seeing if one of the byproducts of bees called propolis um, is actually something that in due course we can process differently to completely, entirely, naturally uh, protect our, our wines from potential disease. Propolis we see in health food shops and um, quite a lot is already known about its uh, benefit to uh, human health as well, isn't there? Mm -hmm, indeed. Well, they, they say that it, it's so um, it's so antiseptic that it's, it's it allows the beehive to be even cleaner than your your operating room. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that's not true. But <laughs> who knows? Well, yeah, that's a thought. Um, beyond the bees, but not including bottles, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, what else are you doing uh, on the estate to bring it back to life in terms of sustainability? If we start, since if we continue in the protected woodland where where our two hundred beehives are, there's also the work that we began in spring of 2020. Once 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 my 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 vision was clear, we reached out to the um, the conservatory for natural spaces of the the Provence 
across region um, and, and, and agreed on a, a five-year plan, if you will. And the first step of this plan was for them to do an audit. And, and for a full year and a half, they essentially audited our 77 hectares of, of woodland, observing, counting all the different species of flora and fauna that existed then. And from that point on, so they gave us that, that report in spring, uh, no, in February of, of this year. And now from that point, they're accompanying on us with a, a management plan, if you will, of different concrete actions that we can need to put in place to regenerate the flora and the fauna in our protected woodland. And my dream is that in the years to come, hopefully sooner rather than later, once we've began regenerating that biodiversity in the woodland, this can be a space that we open to the public um, for, 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 for people young, not as young, <laughs> to come and discover the, the, the biodiversity of, of Provence and so that we can share that with, with the region. Now, once we started that, we realized, hold on, it's a shame because we're not having the same deep dive in the vineyard. And from the beginning, as I've mentioned a few times now, we talk about an ecosystem. Nature works in a beautiful way. And when you, you have the luxury of basically being a glorified farmer, all the more you want it to be an ecosystem. You don't want things to work in silo. And so we wanted to ensure that the work, the regeneration work that we were doing in the protected woodland would coexist with the vineyard. And so we reached out to another association, uh, the League for the Protection of Birds actually, who are doing the same sort of deep dive in our vineyard in terms of counting the species within the vineyard. And this was interesting because we, throughout this, beyond the fact that we know it's the right thing to do, it's so important to count, to observe, because within this work, there's so many preconceived ideas or so many things that we think are the right thing to do, but actually don't have so much impact or things that we think, ah, it's not the right thing to do and ends up being not so bad at all. So doing this deep dive in the vineyard to see the species there and also being able to measure then the work that we have started doing with another two set of experts within the vineyard. So there's an expert in cover crop. So cover crop basically being the mix of different seeds, whether it be bees or buckwheat or these different kinds of, uh, of seeds that you plant between your rows of vines. And, and these mix of seeds will help you to regenerate organic matter, will create a better coexistence between the roots, will help you uh, retain humidity and thus water. Um, so working with the cover crop expert and also hand in hand with an ag agroforestry expert to see how do we move away from monoculture? What are the trees? What are the shrubs? What are the plants that we can be reintegrating within the vineyard to move away from this monoculture, to have this, this better coexistence between uh, the, the, the roots and at its simplest, create this natural corridor, literally and figuratively, between the vineyard and, and the protected woodland. And so that the, the, the bats, uh, the uh, species of bats that we've, we've created a, a nice uh, ecosystem for in, in, in the forest will at night find its way through a corridor of trees and help us naturally mitigate the, the risk of, of pests or insects, if you will, in the vineyard. So those are kind of the approaches within the vineyard and, and, and the forest. And I could go on. I mean, we've also started working with water engineers to see that they work hand in hand with the agroforestry expert to see what do we plant where to in, to maintain water on the rare occasion that there is rainfall um, and and then working on the infrastructure uh, the actually the actual building itself the winery itself so how do we uh, diminish our water consumption how do we diminish our electricity consumption but uh, the winery project is is one that will take a few more years because it definite uh quite a few considerations to have and, and a certain a certain investment you've got so many things going on um, yeah. at, at once there um one of my favorite expressions is the tyranny of the urgent over the important and mm. uh, it must seem sometimes like you're um not literally thankfully sort of firefighting there actually yeah and there have been a few times uh, over these past three years that i thought am i asking Am I asking too much? Um, are we, is it too much change? Is it too much too quickly? Um, is it pushing the teams too much? And I, I've often worried. And, and it, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, nature is so beautifully constructed that it's so interconnected. And it, it, we, 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 once everybody felt on board, you realize that if you have this ambition, that once you start dealing with cover crop, 
you have to deal with agroforestry. And once you deal with agroforestry, before planting something, you should check with the water engineers what they think so that you can better retain the water. And once you better retain the water, you think, ah, but what about the bees? And everything is so interconnected. So yeah, I've, I've wondered sometimes, was it too much too quickly? But um, what's beautiful is that the team all believes in, in this vision, this direction, and you know, you, you, you pull up your sleeves and you just, you, 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 you gotta do it. Because also then it's, it's, it's in, and we'll probably talk about it when we talk about uh, packaging, but in this, when you talk about sustainability and when you talk about making a difference, as corny as it sounds, you realize that it's so easy to become paralyzed and wanting to make the perfect decision. Uh, mm. Last time I checked, it doesn't exist. And, and you've got to try and you've got to start. I mean, here I doubt we have time and I get, I get carried away, sorry, but we, we've got these four hectares that we talked about when, when you were with us about these experimental plots. Well, we got to start now. You, on one hand, you think, oh gosh, we've got so much going on. We've got the conversion to organic. We've got the biodynamic trials. Is, is it really a priority to test the, the climate resistant grape varieties? Yeah, but the results, it'll be in a decade. If you don't start now, like it'll be too late. So there's, as, as you say, it's, it's how do you find that balance of prioritizing, but at the same time, knowing it's interconnected and that it takes time to, to have results. And, and, and if those aren't the right choices that you start over and try again. Mm, and every so often something comes along, uh, most especially in Provence, but in all, all over the place, in, in uh, California, in, in Portugal, there have been terrible fires. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, that causes smoke taint. So it's, 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 if it's the, they happen at the wrong time, then beyond the obvious environmental impact yeah. and the human impact, there's also yeah. a, a production impact uh, uh, as well. And actually, when I was talking to uh, Stephen and Jeannie Cronk at uh, Domain mm -hmm. Mirabeau last year, lovely, lovely couple, they were so mm -hmm. enthusiastic about their new vineyard. We broadcast that episode and within um, a week or so, um, they had been surrounded by a wildfire and uh, yeah, it, it yeah. had caused damage, but thankfully not uh, taken their estate uh, uh, with it. But um, th there is a real imperative, uh, especially in Provence, to do something, isn't there? Oh, for sure, for sure. And you know, just a couple of weeks ago, having having coffee with with Stephen and, and talking about that, and he's working on a, a wonderful uh, alliance. So we are just talking about how to continue that uh, together. Um, but the the forest fires is is a difficult is is really an important one. And at the same time, where there's there's always a slippery slope, and 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 I think something that is 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 very um, a great risk for us uh, within sustainable uh, sustainable viticulture is is shortcuts um, and. To Today, there's there's kind of this easy shortcut to say oh see you guys want to have these cover crop and 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 kind of agroforestry but when there's a f fire this is the first thing that picks up in in flames and like okay that's one way to look at it but in the meantime we're still regenerating the biodiversity so surely uh, we should be working putting our, our our heads together to find something that allows us to put these erosive cover crop in place to plant other trees uh, and plants within the vineyard while at the same time mitigating risk for, for for potential forest fires let's talk about that packaging then because you have been really brave here i think really <laughs> uh, bold my goodness me you must uh, occasionally uh, wonder whether it's going to work, I, I, I guess, but because you've got brown bottles for this uh, very premium wine that the uh, Chateau Galoupe Grand Cru Classe, that the new vintage has just been released that we were referencing. It's brown instead of clear glass. Let's talk about that first. Why have you done that? I, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago the, the, the importance of basing yourself on science and, and, and this idea that there are quite a few preconceived ideas. And, 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 and frankly, at the, at, when I started taking, when I took on this role, a lot of people were asking me about the packaging and I kept thinking, what do I, I mean, I come from Krug. I don't care about the packaging. Let me focus on the juice, on the liquid first, and then we'll worry about the packaging. Now, that changed uh, when one uh, 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 an internal report that we we uh, did uh, we undertook at Moet Hennessy with with uh, a consulting firm. This this internal report uh, published that in the still wine production uh, in a still wine winery, uh, forty percent of the carbon footprint stems from the packaging. And then that's when I was like, whoa, we can become organic, we can diminish our electricity consumption, diminish our water consumption. But if we don't address packaging, we're undoing with our hands what we've built with our feet. 
Um, and, and, but I was lost. I was lost because recycled, not recycled, recyclable, not recyclable, heavy, not. Um, and, and, and somebody in the group recommended that I do a life cycle assessment. And so a life cycle assessment at its simplest basically calculates uh, the recyclability, uh, the recycled proportion of material, and, and the really the life cycle. So how easy it is to recover and kind of every di different step of the chain. Now, for Crucassé, we knew we wanted to craft a fine wine. And as far as we see it, a fine wine is one that you can age over time. And when you're talking about, uh, when you're talking about an, a wine that can age, glass remains the most noble of materials. So we knew, okay, we'll be using glass. Two things to address with glass, though, are its weight and the proportion of recycled material. So first step was working with a glassmaker to diminish the weight, which we did. So our, so our, our standard 75 CL is, is under 500 grams. And then the next step was quite simply, as you mentioned, most Rosé de Provence are in this transparent glass, but that's when we found out that most uh, white transparent glass has 0% recycled uh, glass in it, whilst green glass or brown glass automatically integrates uh, a, a significant proportion, upwards of 60% of recycled glass to make it naturally. Um, and then for me, it became clear when you have a solution that exists, so it doesn't need to be developed, it doesn't take time then it's a no-brainer. Truth be told, when, you, when, you, when there are certain things that, that, that definitely already ruffled a few feathers because, yeah, we know that uh, most, most Rosé de Provence, uh, the, 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 the sensuality, the color, uh, is something that people are really a, uh, attracted to. Um, but for me, it was, um, you got to start making these bold choices and, and explain why, and, and people will, will understand. Because mm, it is a culture change. People are used to seeing uh, Provence rosé for its beautiful colour and uh, they buy with their eyes and they can't see the colour of your wine. So you're taking a risk there, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And I think that at the same time, this, this goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning, the responsibility of a group like ours to start taking those, and I put risk in quote, because we'll be talking about something that, yeah, that was a risk. In the case of brown glass, it's a question of sharing, education. And this is something that is easy. I, we didn't develop anything. We didn't invent anything. You know, the, the harder part was lowering the glass. Yes, that costs money. Yes, that costs time. Yes, this costs uh, uh, work with the glass maker. But using the brown glass, this is just a question of shaking uh, kind of a bit the status quo, but at the same time, people who, who usually look to, to the color of Jose say, yes, but this means, this allows you to be more respectful to the environment. So for me, it's, it's what, what we must do as, as part of a big group. And what about the plastic flat uh, bottle? You're not the first uh, winery to use this bottle. I have seen it once or twice before, but it is still uh, new and genuinely kind of daringly uh, different. Um, it can go through a letterbox, actually, which is quite handy when you receive a sample. But this is for Nomad, your, um, if you like, your second wine, uh, uh, um, a wine made from grapes other than estate-grown fruit. Um, another delicious wine, you know, really, really impressive, uh, more of a conventional kind of um, smashable Cote de Provence rosé for by the pool. But this is in ocean recycled plastic. Why did you do that? Yeah, you talked about courage and bravery before this one. <laughs> you know, it's always talking about it. I, I always get a bit emotional because it will, it will have taken, uh, it will have been, uh, it won't have been an easy ride. Now, why? Uh, why this bottle? Why this wine? Now, for me, you know, it, it, already choosing to make a second wine was a choice. And it's important for me to share it because it, it allows us to come full circle with, with, with a vision for Chateau Galoupé. Now, once we were clear in terms of our direction, I had one problem in the sense that I love that our Cru Classé is only uh, estate-grown uh, grapes. My issue is that my impact on the region, my contribution to the region is then limited. 
I was attached to having a wine, a, a second wine essentially, that would oblige me to go and get external grape supply because this is one I can really share. This is when I can embark the growers, the Cave Cooperative with me. This is when I can share my learnings um, and, and really uh, help, not help, because again, we're not saviors in the region, but contribute our learnings uh, to the region. And, and that's what uh, gave birth to, to Galupe uh, Nomad, our, our second wine. Now, knowing, as you mentioned, that it would be a more, um, I, I consider it far from conventional or standard, but more conventional rosé in the sense that it's meant to be enjoyed, as you mentioned, poolside and, and throughout the year. It's not one, uh, not a rosé you would, you would uh, age. Knowing that, I realized, I know we can go back to the drawing board, back to the life cycle assessment to see what are alternative packaging solutions. Um, so back to the life cycle assessment we went and streamlined the solutions until we got to, to this one. So it's a prevented ocean plastic. So it's recycled plastic from the ocean's coast. So it's 100% recycled because it's, it's PET. So that's uh, the recycled uh, kind of uh, plastic PET that's uh, recyclable. It's, uh, so it's 100% recyclable. You know the weight of, 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 of recycled plastic. It's significantly lighter uh, than glass. So here we're about 10 times lighter than your standard glass bottle and it doesn't break and the fact that it's flat as you mentioned it fits in a letter box but also the the palletization for for, for shipping and logistics is is quite uh, quite phenomenal um, and so off we went with this solution some people love it some people hate it is it the perfect solution i don't know uh, is there a perfect solution i don't think so is are we talking about glass v Plastic, no, different uses for different occasions. You know, again, we go back to, we had an opportunity. We weren't an aging wine. We are not a wine that has the pressure of bubbles. We're not a sparkling. We're not a wine that's a spirit, so that has a high degree of alcohol. What is, besides tradition, what is, why glass? Um, so again, it generates a conversation. Mm. Over time, will we find something that's better? or more suitable, or I don't know. Would I love that we would run out of plastic waste on the ocean's coast so that we'd have to find another solution? Of course, but unfortunately, it's not anytime soon that there's no plastic waste on the ocean's coast. So we'll see, we're trying it. And as I mentioned, it's, it's generating the conversation and, and getting people open to this idea of you don't, you can have good wine that's in something else but, uh, but glass. Mm. I featured it on a radio show I appear on where I do a wine hour on the BBC and the presenter said, doesn't it taste of plastic? Um, uh, but it, it, it doesn't, does it? How, how do you sort of, um, how do you mitigate? Because uh, some things do, that have been in plastic a while at least, do have a kind of plastic taste. But I, I can swear blind that Nomad um, does not. Um, how have you dealt with that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we had fun with it and also tasting quite a, quite a few blind panels with, with other rosés um, at that price level. And uh, it, 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 it fared quite well. Um, and it's blind, so I, there's no way that I can be biased, even if it's my baby. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's super important also in terms of health. Um, there's a, a, a big fear, a founded fear today of, of microplastics and the impact on, on human health. Um, so that is why it's so important to be using PET, um, and, 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 and as we had the conversation with uh, Santiago Navarro, who is uh, the, the founder of uh, the company called Pacamama, who's beyond, behind this, this, this uh, recycled plastic solution, as he often says, not all plastic is created equal. And, there, and without going into the technicals and technicalities of, of plastics, there's PET and RPET and so on, and some are food grade. And the minute it's food grade, then you don't have that migration, whether it be the migration of the micro plastics or of the of of the taste again this is not a wine also just because of the organoleptic profile and the way we've crafted it um, but also because of the interaction with this recycled plastic this isn't a wine that we would cellar uh, we would we would we would you know recommend it for the for the 12 months to come max it's rpet is what you need to look out for if you want ocean recovered pet uh, mm -hmm. plastic isn't it um, exactly and how do you stop it bobbing about in an ice bucket? <laughs> yeah, we're still looking. If anybody has brilliant ideas, I'm, I'm more than happy to... 
<laughs> to take it on. But that's definitely something that, uh, you know, as we, it was just when we were having a lunch that I was like, huh, yeah. we didn't think about that. No, um, you need to yeah. secure it down somehow, having a, like some kind of mesh over the top of yeah. sustainable mesh over the yeah. top of the ice bucket. I think that's probably the answer. But anyway, I'll leave um, you On the I'll flip side, if, <laughs> if, if you're on, the, on a boat or on, on a lake or on, by the sea and, and the bottle falls in, you don't have to worry about losing it yet. You can no. easily pick it right back up. So, it's you know. going to float. That's right. <laughs> yeah. This is true. And you're not going to smash it either, as you say, because uh, exactly. it just bounces. Um, but this rather illustrates the point that you liken sustainability to whack-a-mole, don't you? Mm. Mm. And, 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 and I think I, I've, you know, the, my perspective has been we've got to try and again it is always hand in hand with this responsibility that we have as part of a big group where it takes time it takes sometimes not everything but certain things do take money and certain things do take an inherent risk as as in this uh, recycled plastic solution for galupe nomad and it, it's the responsibility of a group like ours to start the conversation to open people's minds um because i feel that in various different regions smaller growers have already done quite a bit um and we have to we have to carry a weight that is 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 coherent with our with our size um but we'll see and we'll keep trying and and we're, we're already starting looking at alternative solutions um and 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 they take time so you've got to start trying them trying them early i mean my my, my dream would be to to work in um uh, comment tu dis? Uh, consigne, where, where you where you refill basically mm -hmm. um but then you 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 this you clash with kind of uh the legislation of the provenance of, of Côte de provence or as a creux classé um but what becomes interesting is when you can refill your your bottles that's that's really quite quite interesting from its environmental footprint yeah which used to happen with lemonade when i was a, a child so it's um it's definitely you know um it, it's definitely uh doable uh, what would you like to see the wine world do next in terms of sustainability I, I think this one of refill is really something to look into. So we had worked, there's a, there's a great company called Eco Spirits, Eco Spirits out of Singapore. Um, and as the name implies, they're mostly spirits uh, based. Um, and, 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 and they work with these kind of large five liter jugs, for lack of a better word, um, to go into this refill system. And as part of a life cycle assessment, we had looked into this. And, and don't quote me on, I don't know if, if you need to refill within a radius of 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers let's say 200 kilometers but for for the refill system to make sense you have to have a, a refill center uh, within 200 kilometers let's say of London of your establishments in London for it to make sense otherwise the transport of full and empty containers is kind of goes against uh, uh, against everything that you're doing uh, but then you get into the system as I was mentioning uh, the challenge of what wait if you're refilling a bottle outside of Côte de Provence let alone outside of France can you still have the provenance, the appellation of Côte de Provence? Can you still say we're a cru glacé and so on? So I would love if, if, if the wine industry starts looking at what are, how should we be looking at provenance? How should we be looking at appellation so that we still hold that sacred? Because God, no, we, 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 we do know how important appellation is uh, for quality and, and for the savoir-faire and, and for the different rules. But how do we keep those while at the same time um, allowing for different refill systems? How do you deal with uh, what I think is um, a challenge for anyone who decides to put themselves on a on a pedestal, which you need to do in order to shout about sustainability? Um, if you put yourself on a pedestal, uh, invariably someone will try to knock you off. Um, do, do you find that, that is an issue? And if so, how do you deal with that? Oh, I mean, I, 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 for me, it's, I, I think it's important to have that, that utmost humility, especially from where we're starting from. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't venture to say that we're on, on a pedestal. Our ambition is high, um, but I don't consider we're on that pedestal just yet. And I, it's one of those things that as, as corny, kumbaya, hand-holding as it might sound, on that pedestal, the more the merrier. I, and, and I think this is really why I was so attached to Galupe Nomad. Nobody wins if I'm great at sustainability. Nobody wins. It's kind of like innovation. You've got to share. Um, and that's why for me, Nomad was so 
key in what we are doing. I only win if the entire region gets better and better in terms of organic viticulture and consuming less water and electricity. Um, so, so for me, I think that it's one of those pedestals that uh, just has to keep growing as, as more people get on there. And especially that, you know, in something like sustainable viticulture, it's so uh, different from one terroir to the next. You know, I can't, you know, my, my learnings of cover crop it's not a recipe that I can pass on to, to Stephen, for example, at Mirabeau, because he potentially has different uh, a different terroir. And he's just, what, a, a few hundred kilometers away. I'm not even talking about a terroir in, 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 in Napa uh, or even in Bordeaux. Um, and so this is where I think that um, I would never, I, I would never want to talk about a, a, a pedestal. It's really one that you have to, you have to share um, and learn, especially that to, 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 to really make a difference. Um, we don't have time uh, to, to, to keep things to ourselves. I always say where I would like Chateau Galoupet to stand out isn't on the sustainability side because I want to make sure that we share everything and as much as possible. Where I'd like us to stand out is on, on, on our wines, uh, as, you know, especially with our Cru Classé. Why? Because we're a terroir wine. And not that our terroir is necessarily the best or better than anybody else's, but it's ours. <laughs> and the unique composition of the terroir that we have will be the di different from our neighbors, especially the, 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 the grape varieties that we plant and the, the vinification choices on the back of that. But I don't want us to stand out from, from our ambition from a sustainability perspective. Well, a bigger pedestal makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> just finally, I always ask our guests this. Uh, what's your desert island wine? Uh, what would you choose to drink if um, it was your last drink or if you were stuck on a desert island? Oh, an old magnum of Cru Grand Cuvée. Sounds good. Yeah, I think I'll join you on that particular <laughs> island. Um, well, then that's... we need a Jeroboam then. <laughs> yeah, OK, that, that's fine. Deal. Done. <laughs> Uh, well Jessica, it's fascinating to, uh, to talk to you. Um, it's a really exciting project. Um, I can't wait to come back and see what you've, um, uh, what you've done. And uh, I wish you the very best of luck with these new formats. I think it's um, something we should uh, all get on board. Um, but actually, they, most importantly, as I mentioned, they're, they're really great wines. Uh, what, a, what a way to launch. So um, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, on The Drinking Hour. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time and for sharing the story. It's, it's much appreciated. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. OK, just before we go, time to give some attention to some medal winning wines and spirits, as promised. And uh, Chateau Galoupe and Nomad had yet to be released when this year's IWSC judging took place uh, back in early May. Uh, you might recall there was a big focus on giving Rosé uh, the respect it deserves, something I'm very passionate about. Uh, we featured a few of the winners back in episode 60 with Dercy Viana Jr., who led that Rosé judging. If you haven't heard that, then do give it a listen. Uh, including a magnificent gold medal winner from Chateau La Gourdon. Uh, but here are some other medal winners from the 2022 judging process, starting with a neighbouring appellation to the Côte de Provence, uh, Coteau Valois, inland a little, with some elevation, uh, celebrated for wines with really vibrant acidity and, and definition. Domaine La Chautard, 2021, from the Gassier stable, won a silver medal from a judging panel that included me, uh, alongside Victoria Sharples, uh, Philip Reinstaller and Sophia Longhi. Um, here's our tasting note. This wine has a distinctive and summery character. Fresh lime juice, stone fruits and green melon, accompanied by gorgeous celery salt and wild garlic notes. And uh, that's better than it sounds, by the way. It really is delicious. Um, and from the same judging panel, here's another silver medal winner. Famille Ravoir Manon 2021, a wine that I was very fortunate to be working with recently, hosting speed tasting masterclasses at the Hampton Court Music Festival uh, with Van de Provence. Uh, we awarded it uh, 91 points at the IWSC, and here's our tasting note. Lovely poised wine with aromas of wild green strawberries, peach, delicate blossom and green pepper, all encompassed by a freshness like sea spray on a blustery morning. 
And you may recall this time last year, I was speaking to Stephen and Jeannie Cronk, as I referenced back in that chat with Jessica, who founded Domain Mirabeau. Uh, it's a really lovely interview, by the way, if you missed it at the time. Uh, their wines performed really well at the IWSC. Uh, Mirabeau Etoile 2021 was a silver medal winner, another one judged by our panel. And here's what we said. Swirling perfumed aromas of dried mango and blood orange, pink grapefruit peel and scrumptious strawberry, oaked in peach juice at the bottom of a trifle on the palate. A lasting, rich finish. Uh, Etoile was actually uh, originally conceived, I think, as Mirabeau's top wine, although the delicious La Reserve now holds that position. Uh, but uh, you can find it, I think, in Sainsbury's. And Etoile is, is really great value for the quality that's uh, in that bottle. And just to show that uh, Provence Rosé wines uh, made for those on a budget can still command medals, here's an Aldi specially selected Cote de Provence Rosé 2020 that was awarded a silver medal by our judging panel. We said this, a spring bouquet bursts forth on the nose with fragrant flora and red berries. Flavours of red cherries, black currants and strawberries doused in chilled water follow on the palate. There's a perfect balance between freshness and creaminess. And next, here's a mention for LVMH, uh, as we mentioned, the parent of, of Chateau Galoupe. But um, here's something rather different uh, from their kind of core stable. Moet and Chandon, Grand Vintage Extra Brut 2013 Champagne. A silver medal winner in this year's judging process, which for the first time was led by Essie Avalan, MW, the renowned sparkling wine expert and a guest on the drinking hour back in episode 10. Um, awarding it 91 points, here is what the judging panel had to say. Pale rose gold tints with a mature and complex palette of hazelnut and red fruit. Precise with clear definition and well-judged freshness. Refined overall with a long, pleasing finish. And talking of pleasing finishes, uh, that uh, brings us to a natural close. My thanks to uh, Jessica Julmi at Chateau Galoupe for a fascinating conversation. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, thanks for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. I'm Mr. Venusaurus, if you didn't know already, on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.